G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither arose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and bought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who had guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honour or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be bought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Seresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Seresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So great to see you uh, here today, start of a new season, start of a new month. I loved uh, starting our service with a word of thanks to God. Lots that we can be thankful for in life. I've had a uh, weekend full of thanks uh, on Friday night. Uh, I had the opportunity to drive to Geelong uh, with my son uh, to speak at an event called Geelong United. Uh, it was 15 youth groups. Can you believe it? 15 youth groups coming together. There's about 400 or so young people together, high school students, and I had an opportunity to open up uh, the Bible. I asked my teenage son on the way there, uh, you know, can, son, have you got any advice? I'm talking to high school students. And he said, dad, like without skipping a beat, he says, just don't try to be cool. <laughs> 
I feel like that's, that, that could be our motto for the year. Don't try to be cool. So uh, great word there. And it was a great time. Great to see people respond. And then, of course, as we've already mentioned yesterday, uh, by show of hands, who, who volunteers or leads in some way at this church? Hey, can I get you guys to stand for a moment? I know you don't want that, but we're going to get you to stand. And we want to celebrate you guys. And so thankful for uh, your goodness. All right, that's enough. Now you can sit down. Thank you. So good and so very thankful. You know, this church uh, you know, exists, doesn't it, to know Jesus and make Jesus known. And that's only possible uh, through the men and women who serve, who lead, who open up their homes for gospel communities, who open up their lives, who open up the Bible. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We very much appreciate all that you're doing for the kingdom. It was a great day. All right. Well, uh, this morning we continue our epic journey in the book of Esther. Who has enjoyed the series thus far? Yeah, great to see. Why don't you grab your Bible? We are coming to this incredibly epic moment where we find Mordecai and the people of God are running out of time, right? They are running out of time. So thanks to Haman, this royal decree has gone out from the king's office, ordering the destruction of all the Jews. A day has been set and, and, and the months and weeks and days are getting closer and closer and closer to this day of destruction. But last week in chapter 4, we saw that a ray of light began to burst through. Uh, Mordecai sends message to Esther, pleading for her to intercede, pleading for her to own her identity among the people of God and go to the king and, and plead for mercy. And we saw, didn't we, that at first she's uncertain, at first she's fearful, at first she's thinking about her place in the palace and what she could lose. But then there's this great moment where she comes to that realization of who she is and, 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 and the role that she plays in God's big story. And so she says, yes, I'll go to the king. And then she calls Israel. To, to pray, three days to, to fast and to pray, and then she commits to, the, to do the same with a re resolve in her heart to then go to the king and, and plead for mercy. And that's where we left off last week. We, we, we leave with kind of those questions in the air, well, how is Esther going to go? Is there still time for Mordecai and God's people uh, to escape this destruction? Uh, if you've got a Bible, let's, let's pick the story up in, in chapter Five. Um, it's helpful to say that in the verses preceding today's Bible passage, uh, there actually were some key details there. Uh, we're told that Esther does in fact put on her royal robes and does in fact go before the king's court, uh, and, and she comes before the, the king. And we're told that as she approaches the king, she found favor in his sight. She found favor in his sight, so much so that we're told in, in Esther that the king uh, stretched out his golden scepter. He stretches out his golden scepter. Now, I don't know if you've seen um, X Factor. They have a golden buzzer on X Factor. Anyone with me? Right, right. You, you hit the, the judges, you know, they hit the gold buzzer to let you know who has their blessing. Uh, <laughs> Who, has, who is significant. And so here is the king stretching out, hitting the gold, stretching out the golden scepter to let Esther know uh, that he's pleased with her. And uh, so he invites Esther towards her and he says, uh, this is in the text, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Right? So this is her moment. This is her moment. But in a surprising uh, turn of events, Esther doesn't blurt out what she really wants. She instead asks the king to join her for a feast. Now, why does she offer a feast? It's because Esther isn't just a pretty face. Esther is wise. Esther has been around this king long enough to know that there's a certain way of doing things, a certain order. Uh, she also knows that the way to a king's heart is through his stomach. And yet, it's interestingly, I love this about Esther. She says, oh, king, uh, could you just bring a special guest with you? How about Haman? And so she invites the king and, the Haman, and Haman to, uh, to the table. And then look what happens in verse 5. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly. 
so that he may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther prepared. Right, so can you see the, the scene? You know, picture it with me. The great, you know, dining hall. The waiters are all dressed in their finest suits. There's platters of meats and gold vessels with wine and fruit. And the head of the table is the king sitting in his royal robe, sitting confidently. And there's Haman. And he's... Uh, He's got a smile from ear to ear. He's loving how life is working out for him. He's loving his position. And who sits between the king and Haman? There's Esther. Queen Esther. Uh, no longer the young girl insecure in her place. She knows who she is. She knows why she's there. She knows what needs to be done. Interestingly... The king is so pleased by the feast that he, ask es- he asks Esther again, what is your desire? But again, she waits. Verse 8, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Why the delay? <laughs> Like, is, is Esther second-guessing herself, or is this the next step in her carefully composed plan? In any event, the king agrees. The suspense in this narrative is building, and the scene ends. And, and the camera at this point then cuts from the feast to Haman. And we see Haman walking out from the dinner party, and he as is happy. I mean, he's a happy little man. And the narrator says that, that he went with a glad and, and joyful heart. But, verse 9, look at this with me. When Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Don't you love Mordecai? Uh, Mordecai's life at this point is all but over. But he refuses to give Haman the satisfaction that Haman desires. He's not going to rise for him. He's not going to be pushed around by him. He's not going to tremble in fear. And this eats at Haman. Haman's tiny little universe is, is crumbling apart. And the narrator tells us something interesting. Uh, Haman resists the urge to kind of throttle Mordecai there and then. He does something actually very strange. He, we're told uh, he goes home to his wife, calls up all of his mates, invites them over for, I don't know, some kind of barbecue, and then he spends the next hour and a half telling his mates how amazing he is. Right? Hey, it's been a bad day. I know what I'll do. I'll invite all of my friends over and just tell them how unreal I am. Right? So look at this. First, I'm not making this up. Verse 11, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Uh, by show of hands, does anyone have a friend who loves to boast like this? <laughs> All right, if your hand is not raised, you may be that friend. So... <laughs> Why is it that Haman felt this desperate need to kind of read out his CV to all his friends? Why is it that he goes to this elaborate length to kind of pinpoint all of the wonderful things in, in his life? I, I think the word I'm looking for here is pride. <laughs> uh, pride is, is where, and, and you would have seen this as you've tracked this story in, the, in, in Haman, pride is where our identity hinges on what we have accomplished and how others perceive us. Uh, Augustine describes pride so well. He says, it's the love of one's own excellence. And yet, of course, we all know this, that 
When it comes to pride, it's not only addictive and consuming, it is incredibly fragile. Verse 13, note these words. After listing all his wealth, all his promotions, all his great things, Haman says to his mates, yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Don't you find the sorrow of Haman uh, an insight into the shallowness of his life? On the surface, Haman has everything. Wealth, position, power, influence. He has what so many people in the world are craving this day. But when pride is your idol... When your happiness hinges on being celebrated, there is no amount of money or promotion to keep you happy. And of course, this like self-pity is unbearable for his wife. I mean, she's, she's just tired of this. And so she kind of like, she's sick of watching Haman mope around the host complain, uh, house complain about this Mordecai fellow. And so she, she, she tells him what he needs to do. Oh, you, you know, you're unhappy about this, Mordecai? Here's what you should do, Haman. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, <laughs> and he made the gallows made. He had the gallows made. I, this is a striking turn of events. Um, up until about five minutes ago, Esther is making progress. She's wise, she's calculated, she's planned it out, she knows she can't just blurt it out to the king what needs to be done. She's got one feast in mind, then she had a second feast in mind, and she knows that the decree of death is still kind of weeks away, right? So in her mind, she's got time. But thanks to Haman, Mordecai, her adoptive dad, doesn't have weeks anymore, doesn't even have days anymore. He is now but a few short hours from death. The gallows have been made. The writing is on the wall. Come the morning, it's over. And yet, how many of you know it's not over until it's over? I mean, Haman thinks he's the man. Haman thinks he's in control. Haman thinks he's the boss. Haman thinks he's worked this out. But how many of you know that Haman is not writing the script? And, and, and this just leads to one of the best passages in Scripture. One of the most comical, insightful. Uh, I love this text. Uh, what happens as Haman is, you know, setting up these gallows? Well, the text then shifts to chapter 6-1. Read this. On that night, right, that night that this is going down, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Uh, the great king of Persia, sleepless in Susa, How many of you have had trouble sleeping? It's terrible, isn't it? And tossing and turning, telling your body to stop thinking, go to sleep. Uh, you try all these different things. The king, I no doubt, tried everything, tried curling his toes, counting, counting sheep, counting his concubines, like lots of things. Um, Nowadays, like, I don't know what people do. What do we do? We, we get up, pour ourselves a glass of milk. Maybe you scroll your phone, you know, watch some Netflix. I don't know what you do. Put on some calming music. Not our king. He sends a text to one of his servants and says, hey, uh, you need to come upstairs now and read to me the Chronicles. The Chronicles, of course, are like a record of the history. And I must confess, as someone who fell asleep a lot during history class, I can see where he's going with this. <laughs> read, read me the history. I, I want to hear it. And this is just, this is so good because this is not a small book. 
This is a big, I don't know, multi-volume, you know, like heavy books. And you've got these guys like, oh, the king wants us to read these books to him. He can't sleep, right? So they come in and it just so happens of all of the books and of all of the pages and of all of the chapters, they open up and where do they land? On a story of this unrecognizable, unknowable, nobody, Jewish man named Mordecai. Right now, how many of you remember... Um, uh, I think it was probably chapter two, somewhere in chapter two, somewhere in the early parts of the book, right? There's that episode. It seems some, like odd. It's just sort of placed in where Mordecai's by the city gate. He overhears two guys who want to kind of the king. And, and interestingly, he, he, he doesn't hold that information to himself, which would have been the safer thing to do. He, he, he doesn't see it as an opportunity to get rid of the king, even though the king's a narcissist and maybe that would have been a good opportunity. No, actually, with great humility and trust, he, he communicates that assassination plot and it goes to the queen and she warns the king and the king's saved, right? The king's life is saved. And, and then the king reads about this, but then wonders to himself, ha- had he ever been rewarded for this act? Uh, and and uh, he says, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Fair question. Someone saved your life. You might think there might be some kind of recognition, but the king's young men said, nothing has been done for him. Nothing. No promotion, no letter of thanks, no gift, nothing. And immediately, right, this is one of the nicer moments we see in the king, immediately he thinks, well, that, that's not right. Something should be done to honor this man, Mordecai. He saved my life, that something should be done. And then, I mean, this is just brilliance on brilliance. He's like, well, I need someone to help me with this, come up with, you know, gift ideas or what I could do, someone who can make this, get this done. And he says to his servant, is there, is there one of the officials, just any of the officials out there uh, who, who might be able to help at this moment? And who just happens to be walking? Haman. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, right? Of all the people in the court, it's Haman. And... Picture the dude at this moment. He's, he's been spending all morning shining his shoes, putting on his best suit, right? Because he's going to talk to the king and get rid of this Mordecai finally, right? And so he walks into the, the, the court and the servant's like, hey, the king needs your help. And he's just like, oh, brilliant. This is going better than I thought because I can help the king. And guess what? The king can help me. And so then the king asks Haman, uh, verse 6, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? (laughs) Don't you love his tiny puny head and the way it thinks? (laughs) Haman thinks to himself, the king is talking about my favorite person in the world. (laughs) He's talking about me. And so how does, king, how does Haman advise the king? What, what, what advice does he have when it comes to honoring this special person? Verse 7. Um, <clears throat> your majesty, uh, for the man... Who, I don't know why it's a little bit English now, but anyway. <laughs> Sorry, Richard. It's, uh, <laughs> for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, in relationships, we often talk about love languages. <laughs> Who feels loved by surprise gifts? Show of hands. Okay. Who feels loved with acts of service? A lot of hands there. All right. All right. Who, who, who feels loved with uh, words of affirmation? Hey, I just want to tell you guys, you are amazing. Seriously. <laughs> you mean so much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know Haman's love language Everything. <laughs> he wants everything. Royal robes, red carpet, uh, lifted up in the public square. He wants to be seen and celebrated. He wants to be praised. But of course, in an unexpected twist, Haman's dream whew, quickly becomes a nightmare. 
Because then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. (laughs) So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to (laughs) honour. You almost feel sorry for Haman if Haman wasn't such a moron, right? I mean, what a day. He's he's worked all night digging those gallows. He's worked all night digging those gallows for Mordecai. His whole plan to kill Mordecai is over. But even more special, on the king's command, he must lead Mordecai on a parade of honor, which Haman had laid out for himself. (laughs) Craziness. And, and this is all happening, you know, at this point without Mordecai even realizing what was going on. Like, he didn't know that when he went to bed, he was a dead man walking, right? Like, he didn't know that when he woke up, there was someone coming to knock at his door. Um, he did get that knock at the door, but it wasn't a henchman. It was someone to lead him in a royal parade. Staggering, staggering. Why? Because the king couldn't sleep. Like the whole hinge, the, the, the turning point, the king couldn't sleep. Uh, how is this even possible? Well, of course, throughout the book of Esther, we've seen that nothing is ever an accident. Uh, nothing is ever by chance, or what we might say is coincidence. God is not mentioned in this book, but of course his fingerprint is in every scene, and every page. And what I find fascinating about this moment in particular is considering how God's providence and sovereignty works alongside human responsibility. Because it's clear throughout the book of Esther that our choices matter. Responsibility, consequence, matter. When the decree of death comes against God's people, the people of God don't sit in silence. They take action. Mordecai goes to Esther. You need to do this. You need to act in this way. Esther recognizes that she has a defining choice. Do I do this or do I do that? She resolves, okay, Israel, you must fast three days, right? All of which to say that, that there is action. Even these, these feasts, she's planned it out. There's action, there's resolve. There's all of which to say God's people are not spectators. Their resolve and action is very important, as it is in your life. Uh, your choices matter. Your decisions matter. There are defining moments in your life. Do I run in fear? Do I step out in faith? Your role, your responsibility, your choices matter. But there's another side to the coin. Alongside human decision, we see a good and powerful God who is supreme and sovereign over all. Check this out. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap. Right? Remember Haman setting the day of death? What did he use? A lot. The lot is cast into the lap, but... It's every decision is where? From the Lord. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Was the king of Persia in control? Absolutely. As he sat on his royal throne, he decided when to fight and went to feast. He decided when to conquer and when to celebrate. He decided when to rise and indeed when to sleep. But do you see what the Bible is teaching? Even when we see a king wielding absolute power, his power is never absolute. His heart rests in the hand of the Lord and like a stream of water, the Lord can turn a heart wherever he so wills. It's not to say 
There's no choice or responsibility, but to help you see that even the most powerful man in the world is subservient to the almighty will of our God. And sometimes God's sovereignty is at work in flashes of thunder and partings of the Red Sea. And yet sometimes what we see in the book of Esther is that his same will is working behind the curtain in the ordinary moments of life. I mean, why is it that the king couldn't sleep? And of all the things that he could draw on to help him that night, why is it that he draws on these chronicles, this history book? And of all the pages that those servants could have read from that night, why is it that they just so happened to land on the story of Mordecai? I mean, some people could, could look at all of that and say, wow, what an amazing set of circumstances and luck and chance. But, but what were God's people doing at this time? They were fasting and praying, and pleading before God. I love this line by William Temple. He says, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. Look, God is real. God is real. God is powerful. And God is working in our world. God does work through the miraculous, and I'm sure some of you have experienced that and seen that. But listen, God also works through the mundane. Extraordinary moments, but also the very ordinary as well. God, we see this all through this series, whether we see it, whether you even feel it, God is working, moving, weaving together all things to further His plan, His purpose, His promise. Think about your own life. Think about the, the circumstances and the events that brought you to where you are today. You know, when I think about my own life, I was talking actually to Richard about this last night, the sliding doors moments of life, right? The slide, and I could talk about so many different things. I could talk about the fact, for example, that my, my parents separated when I was very young, like 9, 10, and it was hard, but, but one of the like small-ish implications of that is that I ended up at a different high school than I would have had they been together, right? Well, it just so happens that the guy I meet in year seven and become best mates with at that school turns out to be a Christian. And it just so happens that his older sister is really eager in her evangelism. And so she's trying to disciple me and help me. She takes me to a church. And, and, and it just so happens that at that church, I'm discipled, I'm encouraged in ministry, I'm taught how to read the Bible, how to... Right? And then there's a whole set of other bizarre circumstances about how I ended up meeting Vanessa, my now wife. Like all the little things that kind of went this way instead of that way. I mean, outside of that, there's no way we're together, no way we're married, no way we have our kids today. Then you think about this very church, the number of little things that had to be kind of put together like this and like that. And even the journey within this church, it, it, it's staggering. It's staggering when you think about this. Now, and I'm sure you could do the same in your own life. And, and, and it's easy to kind of say, well, that's happened and this happened. But what if we just zoomed out for a moment and saw the bigger picture? What if we recognize that it, this is not about chance and coincidence and this accident and that sliding, but a God who is working and willing according to his good and pleasing plan? Uh, the point here is not to teach blind uh, fatalism, right? If you believe everything is fixed, then you might become quite detached from life, a little bit cynical. You might be the kind of person who just hangs back as a bystander saying, well, I can't do anything. Nothing I do matters. Just become completely disengaged. That's not how you want to live. 
As I've said, there's significance in your choices, in the decisions. The Bible is full of wisdom on how we must live. Right? So take hold of that. But at the same time, if you believe you are the sole commander of your ship, if you believe everything is riding on you and you getting every choice right, oh my gosh, it will crush you. You know, either success is going to come your way and you will be full of self-congratulation about all that you have accomplished, or hardship will come your way and you'll feel completely alone, self-defeating, self-condemning over the choices you've made, selfless because you can't see a way out because it's all what? Up to you. Here's, listen, here's the beauty of Esther The book of Esther never pushes God's sovereignty so far that we lose sight of our own wisdom and choice. And at the same time, it never pushes human responsibility so far that we lose sight of God's hand of grace. Amen? How does our chapter end? Love this. In the closing scene, Haman, defeated, dejected, scurries home uh, in a sea of self-pity. His evil plot is foiled. Mordecai, his enemy, is honored. He's at rock bottom. This time, his wife doesn't propose another plan of revenge. Instead, she hits him right between the eyes with a word of truth. Verse 14, she says to Haman, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is a pagan woman who knows the truth. Haman, your plan is going to fail. Not because Mordecai is wiser than you, smarter than you, not because he's got more money or platform before uh, over you. He's Jewish, and that means he's got friends in higher places. (laughs) He's among God's covenant people. And when you attack any one of God's covenant people, you attack God himself. Haman, you're fighting a losing battle here. So what lies next for Haman? Uh, Well, of course, next week come back for that important chapter as we see the wheels of justice begin to move. Uh, I do want to leave us with one final word of application. It's just one word today. Uh, You ready for it? Here it is. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Is that really Proverbs 3? I thought it was James. Anyway. Oh, we've got it. They disappeared. Let's put it up again. That's fine. Here's the word. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Uh, whether it's Proverbs or James, it's, it's in the Bible. So let's go with that. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you haven't been tracking, and if I haven't underscored it enough for you today, it is so, so clear that Haman is intoxicated with his own self-importance, right? Now, now pride is different from like self-respect. Of course, that's important. Self-respect, self-care, important. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about pride. And all through the story of Esther, we've seen the pride of Haman mount, the the intoxication he has with himself, the desire to be seen and celebrated and honored and and lifted up. Uh, C.S. Lewis has some great teaching on pride, Uh, much that we could say there. I love this quote. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And what I've come to see is that that kind of pride, it just springs up in my own life, in, in, in kind of little 
you know, moments. You know, uh, it, it's that sense of uh, frustration when I'm caught in traffic and I see the person in front of me is texting on their phone, not accelerating off the lights as quick as they should. And they're on the phone and I'm getting angry. And my anger is not like a holy, righteous, like, oh, they're breaking the law. They could kill themselves. No, I'm angry because they're making me late. And I'm very, very important. I don't know if you know that. I'm very important. Um, pride, interestingly, is also there in my parenting. When my kids misbehave, I get frustrated. Why do I get frustrated when they're misbehaving? There's lots of answers to that, but one of the answers can be, and is often, it's because they make me look bad. <laughs> People are going to see them having a meltdown and say, well, he's a terrible parent. So that sneaks on through. Pride is there. Uh, pride is there in social media. You know, why is it that the moment something really, really good happens or you do something or you get that promotion or that recognition and you want to share it and show it and other people to see it? Pride's there in fears, fear of failure, fear of making a mistake. Like, why do we hold back in life? It's... There's a fear of looking stupid, a fear of not being recognized the way you, you should. And, 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 and I hope you know this, pride always comes before a fall. That's Haman. That's the story of Haman. He rose to the top. Now, there's, don't mishear this. There's nothing wrong with success. Right? There's nothing wrong with you know, working your way up the org chart and being recognized and, and being honored in that way. There's nothing wrong, inherently wrong with wealth or, or, or even power or influence. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. The problem for Haman wasn't his power or his prosperity. It was his pride. And pride always comes before a fall. Now, I need to say something that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable at this point. Whenever we read the Bible, and in particular the story of Esther, whenever we read the story of Esther, isn't it easy and tempting to identify yourself with the heroes? We see ourselves in Mordecai, the courageous man who stood his ground with defiance. We see ourselves in Esther, Beautiful and wise, able to confront the king, right? We, we so often, and it's, it's not always wrong, but we so often identify with the good guys. But have you ever taken a moment to see yourself in the arrogance and pride of Haman? Can, can you recall, I mean, just think of your own life. Can you recall instances where you sought personal gain and recognition at the expense of others? Uh, have you or are you harboring resentment or jealousy towards someone else's success or blessing? Do you actively seek opportunities to serve and give, or is it always about people serving and giving to you? Do you ever look at God's word and pit it against your own wisdom? <laughs> Say, well, it's nice that God says that, but I'm going to do it my way. It was Peter Kreef who said, the national anthem of hell is I did it my way. Let me encourage you to examine your heart. Let me encourage you, as the Bible says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me encourage you to get honest with your sin, to reflect on the ways in which you've given the evil one a foothold in your life, the openings in your life, the moments of pride, acknowledge those things, confess those things, and importantly, repent of those things. The Bible says God is slow to anger, quick to forgive. The Bible says that God desires that none shall perish. God, hear this, doesn't want you to remain in pride. 
It's a foolish way to live. It's a dishonoring way to live. It's a self-destructive way to live. God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Think for a moment of the lowness and humility that we see in Mordecai. Unlike Haman, Mordecai is by all appearances unimpressive. Lives in a foreign land, rejected because of his racial heritage. When he does help the king, for years he's overlooked. Uh, and yet he doesn't raise the fists at God. He doesn't play the, uh, the, the victim or point the finger. He fasts, he prays, he makes himself low and lifts God up. And in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, you'd be right to say, well, it doesn't really pay to, to be humble. But what have we seen today? We have seen in the dying moments of the game, his fortunes are reversed. God not only brought Haman down, he lifts Mordecai up. And you want to know something special? This raising up isn't just evident in Mordecai, but ultimately and perfectly. We see this, don't we, in Jesus. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, city on a hill, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He, what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God... Christ Jesus emptied himself, humbled himself, taking upon our flesh, working, uh, walking through our streets, entering a broken, depraved world, entering death, our death. I mean, Haman prepared the gallows for Mordecai. Jesus entered them. Willingly, sacrificially, even joyfully. And how does God respond? God the Father, Philippians 2 verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What did God do? He raised Jesus up. Uh, The crown of thorns exchange for the crown of glory, the decree of death, exchange for the decree of life, the words of dishonor and disgrace exchanged for honor and celebration and praise. And here's what's stunning as the band comes up. Um, when When you say yes to Jesus and continue to say yes to Jesus, when you come to God in humility and complete surrender, I need you to know, God lifts you up. He promises by His Spirit to make us one with Jesus. One in His death, one in His resurrection. By faith, everything that belongs and is Jesus belongs to you and I. There's a lifting up. I remember as a little kid, must have been about this high, uh, going to the MCG with my dad uh, to watch our team lose. And um, I remember as a kid just being overwhelmed by the sea of people, crowds of people. And as a little tacker, you can't see where you're going. You don't, there's a sense of uncertainty. There's a sense in which you're, you're overwhelmed by it all. And, and sometimes life can feel like that just lost in this big world, alone and unsure, where am I going to go and what's coming next? And I, and I remember like yesterday how special it was on those occasions where my dad would, would lean down and pick me up and put me on his shoulders. All of a sudden I went from, hey, I can't see a thing, I don't know where I'm going, to being lifted up and, and all of a sudden feeling Not only just that I could see and everything was clear, but I was secure. 
the promise of the gospel. Listen, the promise of the gospel is that in Jesus, yes, we die. The death of uh, our sin is, is put to death. But in Jesus, we are lifted up, secure with our Father. We're given a vision that is clear of who we are and how we are to live. God is mighty. God is powerful. The Bible says, 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. For Mordecai, that happened in this life, and maybe that's going to happen in this life for you. Maybe there's a thing going on, it's about to turn in your life, and you'll see that lifting up, and we say, praise God. But in Christ, we all look forward to that day, that a day is coming where death is defeated. A day is coming when our evil foe will be exposed. But even more than that, where the people of God will be lifted up secure in His presence. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep trusting God. Keep humbling yourself before Him. Let's stand as I pray. Father, um, we thank, thank You for Your faithfulness and Your goodness. I pray that as we stand right now, You would search our heart, uh, see if there is anything of offense within us, those seeds of jealousy, those seeds of self-importance, self-indulgence, those seeds of pride. Lord, Lord search our heart. We want to give those things to you. We want to name those things. We ask, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would, would renew our hearts. And birth within us a great humility. Lord, we surrender everything to you. And we do it in hope, knowing that you are faithful to your people, you're faithful to your plan, and faithful to your promise. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray, and all of God's people said with one super loud voice, Amen.